0: If we are to fully understand the role of gender and sexuality in the civil rights movement, and if we're gonna provide what Nell Painter calls a truly loaded cost accounting of white supremacy, then we've got to include analyses of sexual violence and rape, testimony and protest that really remain at the volatile core of the modern civil rights movement. Thank you for coming tonight.
1: What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers. And we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. Feel. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10. We did not know each other, and we could not speak to each other, because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. I refer first to the need for far greater public information, to the need for far greater official secrecy. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, it didn't happen. Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you you were four years ago? When I hear your new ideas, I'm reminded of that ad. Where's Where's the beat? They're looking for help. They're looking for help
0: more of the same.
1: When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them
0: by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the when businesses the business go bankrupt, bankrupt, I know them. Well,
1: Governor, we Governor also have fewer horses and, and bayonets, because the nature of our military has changed. We have these things called aircraft carriers, where planes land on them. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. Changing the world can happen anywhere and anyone can do it. So, what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public, to Public Access, Access America. America. Uh, I'd like to hear some more about uh, Rosa Parks. I remember you saying that she was one of the best investigators they were going to send her for the Reese Taylor um, incident. And also, what did I mean? What was her? the rest of her life like and in her investigation story? And also, what did she say about her feet being tired at the time? Is that something she she bought or not?
0: Oh, yeah, she protested that statement. I mean, she said the only tired I was was tired of being mistreated. I mean, she made that clear. And that's not really new history. I mean, that's been written about before. And Rosa Parks, you know, her activist history is uh, well-known, I think, for scholars of the Civil Rights Movement. Although the popular presentation of her is still as this matronly, seamstress, as if she didn't do anything else except sew people's clothing all day, uh, with tired feet. So Rosa Parks worked as the secretary of the Montgomery NAACP from 1943 through the Montgomery bus boycott. And in that role, she didn't just take notes uh, you know, during meetings, as the, the title implies, but she was a, a detective. What that meant was that she traveled the dusty back roads of Alabama, often at great risk, in order to document the crimes that were committed against African Americans. And then she'd take those stories back to Montgomery where she and Edie Nixon and you know other people in power would decide whether or not to launch a campaign or to bring legal charges. You know, they, they, they used a kind of cruel triage in a way to figure out which cases could be used as a public protest, in which cases they had to keep quiet. Uh, you know, politics is the art of the possible. And they had to figure out which cases were politically possible to bring forward and launch a public campaign against. So she did that. She was the grandchild of Garveyites. And so she was raised to believe in black power and black nationalism. Her grandfather believed in armed self-defense. And so did she. She spoke at the funeral of Robert Williams. Shockingly, I mean, we, we forget about that Rosa Parks. The Rosa Parks who would give a eulogy for a man who, who stood up for armed self-defense and was decried during the 1960s for his militancy. She married a man who carried a pistol around town and who was one of the earliest uh, organizers of the Montgomery NAACP and was a defender of the Scottsboro youth who were put on trial and jailed for many years and accused of raping white women on an Alabama freight train. So she did a lot of things. And often her story ends after the Montgomery bus boycott, but she marched in almost every major campaign of the civil rights movement and then continued her activism in Detroit, where as I noted in 1975, she uh, basically headed the Detroit branch of the Free Joanne Little Committee. So here she is in 1975, continuing to do anti-rape activism at a time now when everyone thinks it's popular because the women's movement had made speak outs politically feasible. But black women, like Rosa Parks, had been doing it for a long, long time. So she's much more interesting than textbooks portray her as, and much more militant. She's a radical in her own right. And I think we do her and ourselves a disservice by remembering the tired Rosa Parks and not the militant Rosa Parks, yeah.
1: Uh, thank you for, for writing this book. I graduated from Wayne State University in 1966. Hey. The question I have to ask you in the case of Mrs. LaRusso, she was killed, mm-hmm. but weren't there two or three other young men with her at that time?
0: No, she was in the car with she a young man named Leroy Moton, who was about 19. He pretended that he was dead in order to save himself. And the, the Klan members who murdered Liuzo from their car window, you know, they were. They were in a high-speed chase on the highway, and they shot at her out of their car windows, murdered her. Her car, you know, veered off the side of the road. They got out of their car and went to the car to make sure both passengers were dead. And so Leroy Moton laid as still as a stone in order to, you know, make them believe he was dead. And then, as soon as the car pulled away, he jumped up and tried to flag down the next car, which happened to be a carload of snick. Uh, workers and voting rights activists headed back to Selma and told them what happened. So um, there were other martyrs in the Selma campaign, of course, besides Viola Laiuso, but that night it was just her and Leroy. Oh,
1: well, what's it that got you onto this research in the beginning? Tell us the story about it.
0: It's a great question. Uh, it was 1998, and I was a uh, master student at the University of Wisconsin, and I was helping my professor clean his office. I guess that's what I got paid to do as his assistant. (laughs) And we were listening to NPR. And we heard Joe Asbel talk about Gertrude Perkins on NPR. And I just stopped in my tracks and I said, then what I said to you tonight, who the heck is Gertrude Perkins? And it was so shocking to me that he thought she had something to do with the Montgomery bus boycott, this woman in 1949, that I felt compelled to go to the archive and dig up old newspapers and read about Gertrude Perkins. And so I found the story and I didn't really know what to do with it. It was really the first story that I had found about this issue, about sexual violence in the South. And there was no way to connect it to the Montgomery bus boycott at the time. There was no context. And so I put it aside and didn't really know what to do with it. And a couple months later, I was working on this Tallahassee case. My professor had stumbled across it In researching a book about Robert Williams, a militant NAACP leader in Monroe, North Carolina. And he said, this is an interesting story. Why don't you look at this? I said, okay. Um, And I started to look into that case, into Betty Jean Owen's story. And I did that for a master's thesis. And again, I put it aside. I I finished my master's and went to work for two years and didn't know what to do with it. When I came back to graduate school, a couple years later, I said, there's got to be more to this. This can't just be an outlier. You know, I've read about this stuff happening in slavery, and I don't know if it ended during uh, the period after slavery, so let me look into it. And I started reading black newspapers, and the front pages of black newspapers had these stories plastered all over them. And I was just shocked, as a graduate student, that I'd been reading all these civil rights history books, and none of them talked about what was on the front pages of black newspapers for a decade. So I just started doing more and more research and slowly, but surely, these little puzzle pieces started to come together and tell me a bigger story, a different story about the civil rights movement. But it took a long time.
1: Uh, In terms of your research, uh, did, did you have opportunities for interviews or what other sources of data did you have besides newspapers?
0: Thank you. Uh, Yeah, I did interview a number of people. In fact, I was very lucky to interview Recy Taylor, uh, who, the woman who was raped in 1944 by the carload of white men. She'll be 91 this year. She's still alive. And she's waiting for justice. She's still waiting for justice. Um, I felt very blessed to be able to talk to her. And I interviewed a a number of other women in Birmingham and a handful of people in Montgomery. I used a lot of interviews that I had found Uh, in the archives where the historian may have asked a question and somebody talked about what had happened to them but they never really followed up. I looked at court documents and tried to get court uh, proceedings, trial transcripts and stuff like that. I got a lot of material on the Tallahassee case in that regard. A lot of the trials and cases that I write about in Mississippi the transcripts went missing or you know were thrown away or destroyed after many years. I talked to old attorneys on some of these cases. I have not spoken to any of the assailants, although a couple of them are still in prison for other crimes that they committed after they were released. But I was sort of afraid to talk to them. So it was a lot of digging uh, through the archives, through court records, old newspapers, and then talking to a lot of people on the ground. Yeah.
1: Did the white wives get upset enough with their husbands that that would stop the rapes or not?
0: Not that I found, uh, although it wasn't a focus of my inquiries. um, I do think that white women's silence made them somewhat complicit in these cases, and you see that during slavery in particular. But there were a handful of white women uh, who organized, particularly Jesse Daniel Ames and the Association of Southern White Women for the Prevention of Lynching uh, in the 1930s, who really called out this the use of the myth of the black beast as rapist to protect white womanhood, uh, and they said, you know, we're tired of you using this, this tactic, you know, in our name. You cannot use it any longer. It's not about us. This is about you. And so there were women who spoke out. Ann Braden spoke out about this. She was a pioneer for justice in the South uh, during this time period as well. But most white women, I think, kept their mouths shut.
1: Thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for coming. It's so intriguing and so rich. Um, I'm curious. My mother was born of an assault by a a rape. And her family, uh, she was in Aberdeen, Mississippi. Mm. That's where she was born. And the family fled to Cleveland uh, as part of the Great Migration. And um, I'd like to know whether... There was any exploration of children who were born as a result of the sexual violence and how the women themselves and their families dealt with that those Mm -hmm. children felt about those
0: children thank you thank you i'm really sorry to hear that story although i will say that that story is very common and a lot of women that i spoke to will tell that story particularly about their grandmothers Um, the cases that i studied as far as i know did not result in any children. Uh, the attacks did not result in any children. But a lot of the black women who were attacked left town for a spell and then often came back home. Recy Taylor did not leave. She stayed in Abbeville where her family was under death threats regularly. Her father, in fact, she moved in with her father and he stayed up at night in the backyard, you know, perched in the branches of an old tree with a stack of shells and a shotgun ready to ward off any night riders. Um, a lot of women left the South as part of the Great Migration because this was one of the those push factors pushing people out of the South, sexual violence. And a lot of people stayed. I think, you know, for as for as many women who testified about these crimes, there were many more who remained silent and who buried the story and kept on with their daily lives. You know, never expecting justice and just hoping to continue you know along with their daily activities. That's what Reese Taylor did in many ways. Um, Betty Jean Owens left town for a while and then went back to Tallahassee. And some of the other women that I've written about, you know, sometimes their story ends in the archive and you don't hear back from them. You know, you don't know what happened for sure. So it's kind of up in the air. But The story is not surprising, very common. What about Joanne Little? What happened with the rest of her life? Joanne Little is a very interesting case because she was an inmate, you know, she was a criminal and she had a pretty shady history. Most people in her community didn't like her. Uh, Her parents had a hard time with her and she wasn't the kind of person that people wanted to rally around, you know, she was no Rosa Parks. And so the attorneys in her case had to work really hard to present her as a respectable woman who was acting in self-defense as opposed to any kind of premeditated escape plan. And for a while she did some speaking engagements with the Black Panther Party and some women's groups. And then she kind of drifted off and very few people heard from her again. She, she, she didn't show up to speaking engagements after a, a bit. and was late for appointments, Um, and then, uh, you know, there's an article, I think in the 80s, of her being arrested with a sawed-off shotgun in her car in Brooklyn, New York, and then that's it, sort of the archival trail ends, Uh, and I don't know what happened to her since then, but I struggled really hard with the Joanne Little case because almost all of the other women who I worked on and whose testimonies I read and whose evidence I gathered, I believed in my core. And I wondered for a long time whether or not Joan Little was telling the truth. And whether or not she was a protagonist I could really get behind. Um, But ultimately, I think listening to her testimony and listening to her attorneys talk about her and reading the transcripts, I believed her. I believed her because I don't think that she could have gone up there and pretended her way out of that murder case you know she was smart and she was sly and she had a little bit of a mind but she wasn't making this up you know the, the trial transcripts make that clear and in that case I'm particularly grateful that those trial transcripts are still available the judge's notes are there uh, at, at Chapel Hill in the, in the library in Chapel Hill North Carolina and so she was an interesting case
1: Uh, This may be a bit of an unfair question to ask about a work of history, but as you went through this work, thinking about the world that we live in today, do do you find any resonance of, of, of what you studied and what you wrote about for the world we're living in right now?
0: Sure. I think that in order to understand the way that black women are portrayed in popular media, We need to understand this history. So often black women are objectified and subjugated. Their bodies are sexualized, overly sexualized, not just by white men, but by everyone. Um, And so that, that sexualization is rooted in this past. I mean, that's the Jezebel right there. And I think that if we look at the way Michelle Obama is treated today, you know, there's a focus on her body in a way that I don't remember anyone talking about other first ladies' bodies. Maybe because they weren't as toned as Michelle Obama's, but I mean, but really, I mean, I don't remember anybody sort of talking about or objectifying the bodies of other First Ladies the way that they have Michelle Obama's. And I also think that, you know, there's been a lot of um, complaints about her, not in these words, but really acting uppity, stepping out of her place. You know, have you ever heard other First Ladies being criticized for meeting with dignitaries? I mean, usually we're proud of our First Ladies when they go to Europe and they meet with royalty. But somehow Michelle Obama caught a lot of heat this summer for doing that. Not just because she went on vacation there in Spain, but I think that what people were saying was that she was playing the lady and that that was not appropriate for a black woman. Um, It echoed a lot of the complaints that I've seen in Reconstruction-era newspapers and in historical studies of the Reconstruction in which black women who you know, took off the slave uniform and put on a fancy dress or carried a parasol were accused, and I quote, of playing the lady. So I think there's a lot of resonance in how these stereotypes of black women and the objectification of their bodies is continued to this day. I thought it was really interesting hearing you talk about Rosa Parks as more of this kind of militant figure. And so I was wondering if um, you know, being part of a nonviolent civil rights movement, did that was there any tension with her and the leadership of it, it being nonviolent and her having these different kind of ideas? That's a really good question. I think I think there's this myth that everyone in the civil rights movement was nonviolent and that they adhered to Gandhian principles. But the reality, I think, is if you talk to black Southerners, and if you read a lot of these civil rights history books, you find that most people had guns. And Southerners in general, Americans, I mean, broadly speaking, right? Americans like their guns. And black people are not aliens. They're Americans, right? So I think that, you know, there's a long history of people having guns and using them to defend themselves, particularly African-Americans who lived in rural areas. Not only did they use guns to hunt, uh, but to protect themselves when they needed to, so I think that you know you could not portray yourself as a gun-toting madman to the public media in the 1950s. You would be uh, sent to McCarthy's committee and blacklisted and maybe you know deported somewhere, um, jailed. But I think that what happened. Is that African Americans who participated in things like the Montgomery bus boycott and the Selma campaign in Birmingham, they decided to adhere to nonviolence when they were active, when they were marching. They put their guns away for those moments. Maybe they left them in the car. Maybe they were just in their back pocket. But they, you know, they were there. And oftentimes, the people who we associate most with nonviolence, like Dr. King, you know, he often had armed bodyguards surrounding his home. You know, Glenn Smiley. Uh, from the, I think it's the Fellowship of Reconciliation, went to visit Martin Luther King in the early days of the Montgomery bus boycott before King, you know, had decided on being Gandhian. And he wrote back and said, this place is an arsenal. (laughs) You know, he had so many guns around the house, and then they convinced him not not to use guns anymore. So it's a myth, I think. Other questions?
1: With all the reports of rape now being used as a weapon of war, particularly in the Democratic Republic of Congo, mm-hmm. are you seeing some similarities, although the racial
0: component might not be the same, are you seeing similarities in the stories? Certainly not as, as voracious of attacks as we see around the world, but I think that I think that what I've learned from looking at these cases in Bosnia-Herzegovina and in the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Africa is that rape has always been used as a weapon of terror. It continues to be used as a weapon of terror. And so it's surprising, you know, it surprises me even more that we haven't really written about or talked about it in terms of the kinds of racial terrorism that was happening in the United States. And I think that we need a Truth and Reconciliation Committee, committees, to really cleanse ourselves of this past and be upfront about it, be honest about it, so that we can move on to a brighter future. If South Africa can do it, we can do it. Yeah.
1: to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. Yeah, things bad. bad. It's a depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. But it ain't about it ain't how hard you It's about how hard you get. And keep take moving keep forward.
0: And keep moving forward. forward. That's how we're going
1: America on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and now Facebook.
0: Public Access, Public America. Access America. History, in, history the
1: the in the making. Making make history, history in the making.
0: Danielle McGuire is an assistant history professor at Wayne State University. For more information, visit at the dark the dot com.
1: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems.